This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to episode 17 of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams here in Studio B in Gainesville, Florida. It's finally a nice cool day, which is refreshing and relaxing. Unlike the movie that we saw unfold last Friday, which is very familiar to any Gator fan. It felt like something we've seen before time and time again. And that was the destruction at the hands of Michigan in a primetime slot on national television. Alan, what are your initial snapshot thoughts on the game? Well, it's about what we expected. I think we expected... Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. For them to handle us, it got a little worse than I think we thought. Uh, the defense just, as we even kind of said, gave up a little bit, maybe even earlier. Didn't really show up to play. Um, but yeah, they just, Michigan kept pouring it on. And normally I think you would see a team like start to slow down and they kept throwing all the way in. So that's why you saw a little more scoring there at the end in a typical kind of blowout of that fashion. But yeah, felt very familiar to both the FSU and Alabama games. And yeah, kind of sad, but expected. What about you? Yeah, I, th- I think there's two ways to look at it. You come from the school of thought that we're in, which is that bowl games typically don't really matter. They can get it a hand very quickly because the team that cares less tends to maybe mail it in just a little bit. And at this level of play, it doesn't take a significant reduction in effort to really get walloped. And I think you saw that this year with how many blowouts there were in bowl games. That's not on accident. That's because that's typically what's happening. As the team gets down a little bit and the effort that you need to put in to stop someone's power run game is not there. And I think we witnessed that. The other side is you view these bowl games as really important measuring sticks. And you, you think you sort of stake your claim into it and say this means a lot for us. It means a lot for the conferences. And you look at a loss like this and it's probably a lot more concerning. You think we got outcoached. We got outplayed. Um, maybe we're in trouble I think we can look at McIlwain's tone after the game and get an idea of what he thinks about the bowl game because he was rather chipper. In fact, he was so kind of happy that they actually asked him, you seem happy, where's the disappointment? Which leads into exactly what we said last week is that we kind of think McIlwain was looking at this as like, this is the last game I have to deal with this sort of team. It's only going to get better from here. I'm viewing this through the long-term lens I don't really care necessarily about putting all my efforts into finding a way to win this game. Winning would be nice. But not all the efforts, I think, went into maybe attempting to produce a winning result there as much as it did continuing to build the program. And with that, I know a lot of questions that we have gotten from the game was, why didn't we do things differently? Why didn't we just put in an entirely new game plan on offense to attempt to win this game? Yeah, it's an interesting question because it seems like well, it's crazy to keep doing the same thing and hoping for a different result. But when you look a little bit deeper, you know, there's a limited number of these practices. You know, even if you have more time than a normal game, it's like, what do you really want to use these practices for? 
to install a bunch of very different kind of plays and offensive formation and philosophy just to maybe win a bowl game that doesn't count for anything or to continue to use that time to practice the kind of plays and system that you're going to be using moving forward, even if it's not with, with Trion at quarterback. And when you start to think about it in that light, it's like, oh, yeah, of course we should start preparing for the future. Well, this game doesn't really mean anything in the long term. Still had a great season. I mean, no fan base likes to get blown out in a bowl game, so there's that. But otherwise, if you're looking at the bigger picture, yeah, instead of you know working really hard on these different packages of plays that we'll never use again, let's continue to build and let you know all the other players, all the offensive linemen, receivers, they still need the practices in this system that we're going to be running for moving forward. Yeah, and I think that's just it, is most coaches are going to use these bowl practices unless, again, they're in a major bowl, their schools have been into it for a long time, or whatever the case may be, to really install their system um, and, and use it to the benefit of the younger players. I think what's probably most interesting about this game is it pitted my favorite coach, Harbaugh, against McElwain, who's become a coach we really love on the program. And obviously Harbaugh really sort of decim- you know, decimated us. And you think to yourself, oh, wait a minute, wasn't Harbaugh dealt the same hand? His team was actually worse. <clears throat> Except Harbaugh obviously had almost all of his starting team intact. And he had a quarterback. And most importantly, he had a quarterback from the system all year long. So I think if you watched the bowl games and you watched them fairly, you saw something that was very evident in all of these games. There were a lot of weird quarterback injuries this year where a lot of weird guys had to play quarterback for teams, backups that hadn't gotten any snaps, wide receivers that hadn't gotten any snaps. And what you saw is, one, they almost all did better than Treon, which says a lot about where Treon is as a quarterback. We've mentioned it countless times on the show. He is the worst quarterback I've seen in a Gator uniform. And two, most of those teams struggled tremendously to generate any sort of offense. The Oregon game is the most notable by far. It's 31-0 at halftime in that game. Uh, Adams gets hurt goes out, they bring in a backup quarterback, and they proceed to gain like 50 yards for the entire rest of the game until they then score right at the end, or I'm sorry, don't score right at the end, but just survive with a field goal to go to overtime and then steal a few touchdowns back and forth and wind up losing. But to me, you could be the greatest coach in the world, and if you don't have a quarterback, you can't win, with the exception of Alabama. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the in the quote, post-interview segment. Maybe why Alabama can afford to do that with average quarterbacks, and Coker certainly is above. And average. average quarterback play is significantly better than what we were seeing. It, the last it is, game. it is. But generally, you need solid quarterback play. So to put a little bow on that, I don't think it even mattered what we would have done. I'm still of the camp that we should have tried someone else running our system, whether that be Grady, who I think would be the same as Treon, or more importantly, you know, favorite Jacob Guy. Um, but we didn't. Urban and it's legend. A, yeah, yeah, right. Urban, urban legend. We've tried to make that guy as famous as possible. But we didn't. And at that point in time, it's behind us now. I just feel like hopefully this is over. I wish Treon would switch positions. I don't even want to see him competing for it. If he somehow wins a starting job, my Treon cot will continue. I'm just hoping that's really not the case. So let's then put this season in the rearview mirror. Really a season of two completely different chapters. It's a two-chapter two book. Yeah. And they are entirely different. One that was full of glee and joy and excitement, and we're on this show, and we're giddy. And the other that is just a 4-4 four and four debacle where we looked like one of the worst teams in college football, which, in fact, we really did. So with that, let's put some grades on the various facets. Let's start with the offense. Give me the grade for the offense for this year, given how you thought it would have been before the season. Let's play it that way. Okay, this is a tough one to answer, obviously, because you said it's it's a really a tale of two seasons almost within this one uh 
I'm going to have to give the offense a C minus. And that's reflective of two things. One, just the degree of difficulty it was going to take to have a competent offense with the lack of playmakers, with the lack of offensive line depth and experience, and then no quarterback play. I thought it was kind of remarkable at times what McElwain was able to get out of his offense with Greer, and they're building towards something really great. And then you just saw a total and utter collapse. So it's really difficult to give this a sensible grade. Um, the only reason it's a C minus and not an F minus, as you would look at you know the tape from the Citrus Bowl, is that we were building towards something. We never really like knocked it out of the park in the first part of the season, but we were getting there, and the the team was doing what it needed to do on offense. What about you? I'm going to give it a, a C plus to a B minus, maybe like a seven, nine and a half grade in there. And I'm going to say that for two reasons. One, in the short term, looking back at the rearview mirror, I still hold McIlwain accountable for never switching Treon. I think that was a, a grave mistake and someone else should have played. And so for that, I'm going to dock him a full letter grade and a half. Outside of that, though, what I saw this year in McIlwain's scheme, in my opinion, is fantastic. We routinely have wide receivers running wide open. Routinely, even mm-hmm. against the likes of Alabama. If you look at the tape, these guys are open. And that is not that easy to do. And so if I look at this as a long-term lens and I say the way he runs the plays, the way that he keeps defenses off balance, the way he was able to do that at times using a really inexperienced and rather terrible offensive line, it points to a high grade, meaning before the season, I didn't know what his offense was going to look like. And now having seen it, I am really excited for getting an actual trigger man behind that that can run it so hence the maybe b minus c plus range because i really am hopeful for the future i think it's a very timeless offense it's not gimmicky very hard to stop that as well so let's move then to defense defense was supposed to be the stalwart of our team by all accounts a really consistent and good season what grade do you give them i'm gonna give them a b plus the they were Played really well to verging on dominant at times this season. A ton of talent. I think in some ways, though, to give them like an A or an A plus or something like that, they would have had to stolen. They would have had to have stolen a couple of those games, like Florida State or Alabama, which they could have with some bigger plays, you know. But they were really great. I, they played hard all the way up to that bowl game, and you know, a ton of talent. Like I said, and really for the most part. Um, making a lot of use of that. You know, we saw at the end of the year, minus Alex McAllister, really lack of pass rush. Um, and that was a thing that probably ultimately doomed them to not being able to get over the hump of like being a, a really historically dominant defense. But they played great. B plus is, you know, again, that's on a curve. Like the offense was on a curve. I was kind of defense, they had the capability of being an all time great defense and they didn't quite get to that level. So that's where they sit with me. What about you? I think that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to just grade them and you look around the country and say, okay, well, they get an A, obviously. But I think if you look through the preseason lens, B-plus feels right. Maybe they slide into an A-minus category because of what we had to deal with at linebacker. I mean, really only having one or two linebackers. Jeff Collins did a phenomenal job being able to patch together defensive sets that worked against teams and keep them off balance when we were really, really thin at that position. Uh, with that being said, you know, Vern got beat his fair share of times this year. Obviously, Marcus May got beat I mean, more times than I can count on both hands. So you had big play lapses that, like you said, a great defense does not have. And you look at that Alabama game, again, with Treon, can you win the game? Probably not. But there are two touchdown plays. 
great defenses make those plays. They don't give those up. And so I think B B plus feels feels like a good a good settlement there. Fun year for the defense. Probably their best trait, in my opinion, was how they just stuck in the games for seemingly forever. Yeah. When you have one of the most frustrating offenses on the other side of the ball, that was a really impressive thing for a bunch of young guys to do. And that really stuck out in my mind from this year. I'll remember them because of that. I mean, every game we won this year was essentially because of the defense. I mean, so any kind of criticism of them needs to be compartmentalized to like what their ceiling was because ultimately that's the story of this year. I mean, we're going to remember the Will Greer suspension, but the success lays almost totally at the feet of the defense plus a little maybe Antonio Callaway <laughs> mixed in there. Uh, so speaking of Callaway, let me go ahead and ask you for your grade for special teams. I know it's been one of your hot buttons this year. Ooh. Callaway is, is a bright, shining star. And in fact, we had mentioned on the show that we wish Brandon Powell wouldn't take kickoffs back. And you actually got to see Callaway take kickoffs yeah, back good. in the bowl game. And he I mean, he's incredible. I mean, it's it's 10 to 12 to 15 yards more. So that is a a home run recruit. Let's just first couch that for McElwain. What an incredible player that we have in Callaway. If he can recruit more guys with that kind of composure and that kind of skill set, I mean, if, I can't wait, right? I can't wait. But special teams as a whole, we had a great punter, you know, top 15 punter. We had more or less excellent punt coverage. Really, we did. I mean, a few penalties on punt coverage, and half of them were bogus with, you know, the gunner getting there early, even though yeah. he wasn't there early. So that was really solid. Uh, kick return on punt. I mean, punt return was incredible. Yeah. Now, kickoff return was low. We were very low nationally there, and, and we didn't do anything horrible. I just think we lacked maybe a true kick returner. And then lastly, of course, the place kicking game was so bad. And it, it's it's really hard to judge this accurately because you had – it wasn't for lack of trying. They marched several different guys out there. Maybe they should have kicked Dennis Moore. It was just terrible. So – I think it got better as the year went on, aside from the playoffs kicking. I mean, I railed on the special teams early on in the season. I did think it got better. I think our coverage got a million times better after the yeah. Tennessee game. We really buttoned up. Uh, we faced some really good returners, and they really didn't do a whole lot against us. So, all in all, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a C, and that's only because I'm just gonna give them a small pass on the fact that what could they really do with the kicking game? And our guys are kicking the ball two yards off the line. They're holding open tryouts. They're trying to address the need. There's only so much you can coach that up on. Clearly, technically, it's probably going to be like a D minus or an F because not being able to make field goals drastically changes the way you play the football game. So I just say that saying, what, what could you what could you do? They tried it everything out with the resources they had. I'm going to stick with that C, C minus. Realizing fully that the production on the field was this polar opposite between Callaway's A plus performance and the kicking team's F minus performance. What about you? Yeah, this is another tough one to grade. I'm going to go lower than you. I'm going to go D plus. Uh it was frustrating at times, especially in the kick return game. Brandon Powell's a really great player, but he's not a kick returner. It, it sounded like a good idea, and I could see why they thought, you know, he would be the answer back there. You know, running back, wide receiver kind of hybrid. He's real quick and shifty, but just didn't have the top end speed to really to make that work. There's a ton of guys on the team who can just flat out run, and giving them a chance seemed to be a no-brainer to me. There's a lot of problems early on in the coverage. You're right. We did get significantly better. I mean, I was holding my breath every – kickoff at the beginning of the year and that did get better so i enjoyed that but when you are as bad as we were in in uh um field goals i think it has to just submarine everything else historically bad i mean i've never watched a team and we've had some kickers who've gone through some slumps before but i've never been in a watched a team and been in a situation where they have 
a zero at kicker. And it really affected us the way we had to play the games. And so it was a very frustrating experience. Uh, I know you're right. Limited by, you only have so many people that held open tryouts, but still uh, a frustrating experience for every Gator fan and the, and the special teams this year, I think. Let's talk just really briefly about coaching in general. We're not going to grade every coach, but who who stuck out to you this year as a coach that you said, I really like the job that guy did? I think uh, there's a lot of accolades to be handed out. Um, we've talked, we mentioned Mike Summers, offensive line coach, making something out of nothing and getting these guys along. And it still weren't obviously a great unit, but some a productive, adequate unit for the most part. So props to him. And then we've championed Jeff Collins, I think, that group of him and Randy Shannon and the rest of those guys um, really did a quality job with this defense. You know, coming in, and a lot's been made of them coming in and learning the previous regime's terminology instead of having to make everybody new thing, learn new things. So this did a lot right this year. Um, and so I think they did excellent. What about you? Yeah, I thought I thought Jeff Collins was definitely my standout coach of the year. My question mark coach of the year, and this is way too soon to say this, I'm just going to put it out there, is is Doug Nussmeyer. And I say that because of the regression, the visible regression we saw Treon have. And he's the quarterback coach. Look, like I've said all along, I don't think anybody can can make Treon incredible. He's got a lot of fundamental weaknesses. I'm not holding Doug Nussmeyer accountable. I bring it up on the podcast today because there's – sort of this dark horse mentality on the Michigan message boards and in the general population that Doug Nussmeyer was like a big reason why their offense was not good. I'm not holding him to the fire right now because I think Will Greer was outstanding, but then you could also make the argument that Will Greer was already really well coached. So something to keep an eye on. Doug Nussmeyer, uh, short tenure at a few schools, hasn't like been around forever as a developer. I don't think it matters that much. I think McElwain really is the quarterback coaching guy. But just a guy I want to keep an eye on next year and this spring to see kind of how he brings these actual pocket passer guys along. Again, not suggesting he's in the fire, but you know Jeff Collins is my guy for the year. Doug Nussmeyer is a guy I want to watch. Like, I'm intrigued to kind of see what he's really capable of doing. And good thing moving forward, uh, well, if you believe in all of our coaching staff, even special team coaches, that we're – Having some consistency, I don't think we're losing anybody, hardly, no, no one notable from the staff, which is a rarity in college football. So that's good news for the players and the coaches. And it says a lot about McElwain, I think. These guys want to stay. They believe something good's happening, which is which is great. Okay, so let me ask you a bigger picture kind of reflection on the season. Maybe the most important question um, for Gator Nation. You know, we've had some success this year, but there's you know history is replete of with coaches who have had one good year and then it not turned out to be much after that. I mean, case in point, must champ. So there's some noise in the system a little bit. Do you think this was kind of a fluky year with a soft schedule and a bunch of lucky wins? Basically the question I want to ask you is, is Jim McElwain a fluke? And that is a great question to ask, and it is on a lot of people's minds right now. And in my opinion, no. And in fact, the only real negative that I can cite for McElwain is that he stuck with Trion when he should have switched to anyone else. Outside of that, I have loved his approach to the game, the way that he handles the athletes, the things that he says. I mean, I really, really like it. It's all about details, individual responsibility, choices that you make. When you think of building a program, I can't think of a guy who is is articulating the things that I would like to see that I think lead to success 
And he even said so after the bowl game when he talked about Jordan Scarlett's suspension and he talked about choices that you make. And it's not just coach speak with McElwain. You can tell that these players are understanding that he's not an authoritative dictator that's casting down punishment. He's basically saying, look, here's, here's your menu of options of things you can do in life, and you have a choice. And based on what choice you make is what result you'll get. I just think that's a fantastic way to coach. So I think this year... Did we win some games maybe we shouldn't have won? No, most notably the Tennessee game? Yes, but that happens every year in college football. Did we see the team make, I thought, really rapid progression every single week until we lost Will Greer? Yes, absolutely. That's definitely the sign of a great coach. And then did we see the wheels kind of fall off the bus? Yes, we did. But like we've seen with other teams, TCU, you can pick any Baylor, pick anybody you want. If your quarterback is not there, it's tough, tough sledding for you. And and so I think what we saw out of McIlwain, the style, the way that he was able to teach these players, the way he was able to get production out of a guy like Callaway, the the lack of penalties. I mean, just a lot of things that are really tangible that I think bode well for the future are there. So I feel very, very strongly about Coach McIlwain. Now, with that being said, he's not where a guy like Harbaugh is yet. Harbaugh's a guy that's, that's coaching Super Bowls. He's been around longer. He's coached longer. I think McIlwain's got just as high of a ceiling as a guy as Harbaugh does. I really do. But he's not quite there yet. Harbaugh's probably more efficient at getting more out of his team than McIlwain is right now. I think that's fair to say. But a fluke, no. Will McIlwain still be learning every year? Yes, I think he will. Um, I don't think that he's mastered the profession just yet. So very excited about next year. Really curious as well to kind of see what's going to happen because there are a lot of balls in the air now that we lost Will Greer. That sort of two or three years of guaranteed awesomeness is not there now. We're kind of right back to, well, we have to see what's going to happen and we will get a further look down the lens at what McIlwain can do as a head coach. Agree with almost all of that. I think uh, his success at Colorado State um, shows someone who can build a program out of nothing. And then his success this year, I think, just bolsters that opinion for me. Now, like you said, he doesn't have a long track record, so we're going to have to wait and see if he can continue to build on this. And can he reach the heights of like an Urban Meyer kind of you know level figure? That's a really high bar. But can he win at the elite level consistently. I tend to think he can. Now he's got his work cut out for him with this whole Will Greer fiasco um, moving forward. He's going to have to still, you know, next year will look like maybe we're gearing up for a championship and it might be another holdover year while we bring playing an unknown at quarterback. So it, maybe that like kind of pushes his timeline back, but I'm, and, you know, maybe we even win just the same amount of games. that don't take huge steps forward numerically. Um, in win totals, but I, I'm confident going into the offseason. I don't feel like this is like a, a magical season that we'll never see again. Uh, this feels very much like a part of his program and his ascension as, uh, I think, an elite head coach. So football season is done. Wrap a little bow on that. We're still going to be talking, obviously, as a football podcast moving forward into the season. But for many Gator fans, this is when they turn their attention to basketball season. And so we want to do a quick little preview for the season, a little special treat for you guys, bring on our own little basketball insider. So let's go ahead and do that. We are joined now by friend of the program, Justin Seitz, a one-time Florida basketball team manager from 2009 to 2011, and generally really just a Florida basketball insider. And before we let him talk a little bit, I want to actually just speak to, to Justin's credibility. He made me personally look like a basketball sage the past several years because I would kind of reference him as an insider to all of my friends and I'd give him all this great information on a particular player or a particular situation. And I think his 
I think he was right like 100% of the time. It was actually incredible about guys I hadn't seen play, what the team's record would be. So he's a little bit more removed now, but his insights are just as valuable as ever. So Justin, welcome to the program. It's good to be here, guys. Good to be here in the studio. Um, I got to say, the intro voice to your podcast is just incredible. Very George Clooney-esque or even Morgan Freeman. I'd really like to meet that guy. And I would also say, I mean, do you guys always uh, do the podcast in just your underwear or is that just especially for me? Just just for you, buddy. Okay. Special day. That makes me feel good. It makes me feel good as well. <laughs> and and Justin, give us your overall thoughts thus far on Mike White's State of the Gator basketball program. Yeah, I know we're coming off of a, a good football season, and but you know the last couple of games people are trying to forget. So they, we have a lot to look forward to, I think, with the Gator basketball program. Um, currently, we're nine and four. We have uh, we won our opener against Georgia in the SEC, so we're one and zero in the SEC. We have some our key wins are, are Richmond, Oklahoma State, and St. Joe's. Um, those are all RPI top one hundred wins, and we don't have really any bad losses. Um, but we don't have any signature wins really either. Our losses are to Purdue, Miami, Michigan State, and FSU, which are all quality opponents. Um, but in general, we, we look good in the RPI. We have a, we're ranked third in strength of schedule, according to ESPN. Um, but I, I do, I like the future. Um, Mike White is a high-energy guy, young guy, and I think the future is in, in good hands with him. So fill us in on some of the players this year. What are some guys that you like? Maybe some guys that are <laughs> a little more problematic. So maybe some guys you don't like. <laughs> um, well, my New Year's resolution was to speak well of everyone. So I'll try my best. Um, but I think when it comes to to our players, the you know our best player is Dorian Finney-Smith. He's you know senior leader. He's been here. He knows the program. Knows how to play. He leads the team in points uh, at about 14 a game and rebounds at about seven a game. Um, and he's the guy who we kind of have to lean on. And he actually has had a, a couple of tough games here recently, but um, a big guy who's actually stepped up in his place is freshman Kevon Allen. He is out of Arkansas. He's a two-time Arkansas Basketball High School Player of the Year and probably our most highly touted freshman this year. He had 32 points against Florida State. Um, is a guard who can kind of find his own shot but can also shoot from the outside as well and create for other people. Um, so I think him just going forward is going to be key for us. If he can continue to be consistent uh, scoring, um, that's going to be big for us as, you know, if Dodo has an off game or something like that. And Dodo is Dorian Finney-Smith. And then uh, a transfer who I was really excited about going on um, to start the season from USF, John Igbunu. He's 6'11", 255 pounds, just a, a beast, kind of um, a Patrick Young's tile body. And um, I've been a little bit disappointed with, with some of his play. I think he is um, you know, he's a pretty polished player, but he hasn't really learned how to play without fouling. And um, But he'll get there. I think we need to utilize him more in the post. And uh, those are some of the guys that kind of I feel like are contributing well now. Um, the point guard play is where we kind of fall off a little bit um, with Casey Hill, uh, who started the season starting, and then Chris Chioza took over for him. And Chioza, actually, once he's been in, has been really good. He started the last five games. Um, he has 21 assists to only two turnovers in that span. Um, so we're getting some pretty good play out of him. Um, but it's just kind of difficult with, with, uh, with Casey Hill has to spell him sometimes, and he's kind of had a rough 
kind of go of it so far. And he shoots 50% from the free throw line, shoots 20-something percent from the three-point line, it's just and turns the ball over, has a 3-2 to two assist to turnover ratio, which is not good. Um, so can we rely on him in late-game situations? And that will remain to be seen. Yeah, he's been a little bit of a guy for – I know Gator fans, he's a frustrating guy to watch because a lot of talent, but missing some important pieces. What would you say is like the biggest strength for his team and the biggest weakness? Yeah, um, I think it's probably the – we'll start with the weakness. Um, it's been, I think, a weakness that we've kind of endured, it seems like, always with Gator basketball, just free throw shooting. We are currently last in the SEC in free throw shooting at 62%, and um, which also ranks 332nd out of 351 in college basketball, which is just astounding. I, I think there's tons of high school teams who probably shoot better than 62% from the free throw line. Um, and then just kind of shooting in general, we shoot 28% from three, which is 339th out of 351 in college basketball. So just guys who can consistently shoot the ball and score, we all, we kind of look for scoring a lot. And it, if Dodo is not scoring or if it's not coming from Keevon Allen, then who's going to score is basically it. Um, but I think defensively is where our real strength is in a lot of the advanced defensive stats and metrics we rank in the top 15 and top 10 in in our defensive efficiency and holding opponents um so i think that's where our strength lies uh, mainly so with regards to mike white what's the biggest maybe tactical in-game change between him and billy donovan that you're seeing this year that we haven't seen since you know, since you know before billy's era well i mean that's a good question i actually when I, w- I was in Knoxville in May, um, visiting my brother, actually, and I stopped in to, to the Tennessee basketball offices because our former assistant coach of ours, Rob Lanier, who was here when I was a manager, is now an assistant at Tennessee. So it was actually the day that Mike White got hired. And I went in there and I talked to him for about 20 minutes, and it was before that it got announced. And he made you know some comments about how... He thought, I brought up Mike White as a potential candidate, and he's, he thought how solid of a choice that could potentially be, but he also said he just cut exactly from the Billy Donovan cloth. And, you know, I kind of pressed him on what that meant, and just really a lot about him from he's a family man, uh, and a guy who has integrity, and then just style of play is very similar to Coach Donovan. They press a lot, they play fast, even the early, more so the early days of Coach Donovan where they get up and down, with guard play and want to shoot the three and and really just get you running. So, I mean, as far as style of play, it is very, very similar to Coach Donovan. And one thing that Coach Lanier also said in that was that when you're trying to emulate someone, it might be kind of tough when you're cut from the same cloth um, rather than being maybe a guy who just brings in a completely different style. So we'll see. I mean, we'll continue to see. I think we, we probably press a little bit more now and maybe like cheat more for for steals and things like that um than than we were with coach donovan here at the end of his tenure i think we kind of were more of a a more solid half court man-to-man team um which was great but i think defensively uh, i like what i'm seeing out of coach white and his staff so far too so we know that in order to be successful in college basketball you have to have really good recruiting and it's a lot harder, I think, to recruit in basketball than it is to recruit in football because if you miss a couple of years, it seems like you put the program significantly behind. 
And even then, you look at a guy like Casey Hill, who was a top 10 consensus pick, some guys thought would be maybe a lottery pick in the NBA, which now seems like an incredible reach. One of the bigger busts in recent memory, unfortunately for us. But can Mike White recruit? I mean, he's a guy with an old Miss background, and he, you know, he coached a little bit at a smaller school. I mean, what's it going to take for him to recruit? How are our recruits looking like right now? And can, do you think he can do it? Yeah, I guess that remains to be seen. And recruiting in basketball is it's a lot, you know, it's different than football because you can kind of project guys easier in basketball. You can see, like, for example, Ben Simmons is going to be coming in the O-Dome um, on Saturday. He plays for LSU. He'll be the number one pick in the draft. Clear that he's going to be a program changer. And most of the time you can predict those type of things. Uh, you mentioned the case of two McDonald's All-Americans that we just had, Casey Hill and Chris Walker. Man, they really hit it home for us. Um, but yeah, it, it remains to be seen whether coach white, you know, can recruit. He's a young guy. His staff is full of young guys. So you would think that people would want to come play here. Um, so far though, it, it, I, that is kind of my one concern. You know, it doesn't seem like we're reloading and, you know, we're going to lose Dorian Finney Smith. We're going to lose Alex Murphy, you know, could potentially lose John Igbunu. How are we going to replace those guys? And currently, our 2016 recruits, um, two guys, Eric Hester and Dante Bassett, and they play for the same high school team, Oldsmar Christian. So I hope that that team wins the state championship. My goodness. Um, but, you know, really not too highly touted of guys. And that's tough. This is his first class coming in, so he's got to establish himself. Um, so we'll, we can't really judge off of that. We, we'll want to see down the road a little bit more, but kind of in the state right now, Florida State and Miami are really kind of kicking our butts a little bit when it comes to recruiting. So um, we'll see. And then 2017, all we have committed now is a guy named uh, Shea Alexander, who actually just played in the City of Palms tournament down in Ocala and was really one of the standout guards in it. So, um, But he's also just a three-star right now. Um, but I hope that you know Coach White can bring in some of those top guys. I don't see why people would not want to come to Florida with the brand that Coach Donovan built and just kind of all the facilities and things that we can put around them. All right, so what's your expectations for SEC play here, and do you think we make the tournament? Yeah, so I mentioned, you know, we're 9-4 and four now. We have 18 games remaining on, on our schedule, um, and you really kind of want to get to that 20-win mark, I feel like, to be – a solid you know, potential to make the tournament. So that means we would have to go 11-7 and seven in our remaining games, which is doable, um, definitely doable, but also, you know, not automatic. Um, I think we play LSU twice. You know, LSU is one of the top teams in, in the SEC, or we're supposed to be preseason. We go at Texas A&M. We play Vandy twice, Kentucky twice, South Carolina, who's ranked in the top 25. And then we, and then we actually play West Virginia randomly in in Gainesville in I think January or February so we have some tough games remaining on the schedule for sure so it's not just a gimme that you know you can write us in but I think if we can win you know maybe 11 go 11 and 7 and maybe get a good signature win like West Virginia or Kentucky um, that would really boost our resume and uh, propel us into the into the uh, tournament. All right, let's play a quick little game. I'm going to give you a few thoughts, and you give me the first answer that rattles off your brain. So give me give me your top six, top six for the Gator basketball team right now. One through six guys you're rotating through as a lineup. Top six. Um, I like Chioza, 
Um, Kayvon Allen, uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, John Igbunu, um, Devin Robinson. Is that five? <laughs> and I actually really like a guy who I haven't mentioned yet, Brandon Francis Ramirez, who I think could be a, a scorer, um, but just hasn't been able to really fit into the lineup yet. So um, we'll see with what he can bring down the SEC play. So we know that your your favorite player, you think the best player is, is, is DFS or Dodo. Who do mm-hmm. you think the worst player on this current Gator team is? Man, you're really not helping me with my New Year's resolutions. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think Treon Harris is probably the worst guy on the team. There you go. <laughs> I know that you would probably agree with that, James. <laughs> so there's not a guy that you think that really hinders. I mean, I. I mean, put I, your analyst hat yeah, on. Yeah, I, I mean, is, I come from an a analytical uh, perspective. You're a coach. I come Who from you... a, a basketball kind of background. My dad coached a little bit in college and played in college, and pretty old school where you just you want to take care of the ball. Um, you value possessions, and just a guy who makes me kind of want to pull all my hair out sometimes is Casey Hill and. Uh, I think he does a lot of good things, but just as far as some of the plays that he makes and not valuing the ball and turning the ball over, um, and then just having a point guard who shoots 20% from three and 50% from the free throw line, it's just that is not a formula for success, and you have to have good guard play to be successful in college basketball, and I think we need to be more consistent at that position. All right, we'll take you off the hot seat and ask you a layup question here. You're a resident of Gainesville. Long-time Gainesville resident. This could be a tough question for you in reality. What's your favorite restaurant? I mean, it's quick to me. I think it's been used on this podcast before, but my favorite restaurant is The Top. Um, great uh, downtown restaurant. I will, I'll throw another one out there that you actually turned me on to, James. A Mexican spot. Um, very authentic. La Pasadita is the name of it. You got to go there. You get the three tacos. Campichano, carne asada, and then whatever else, you know, floats your boat. I don't know what you like there, but that's a very authentic, really good taco Mexican restaurant in Gainesville. All right. Well, thanks to Justin Seitz, our basketball insider, for giving us a little insight into the season and how it might go for us. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. So let's jump right back into the, the football scene. There is a game left to be played the national championship game Alabama Clemson let's spend a brief moment talking about how they got here both of us had Alabama not a surprise there I don't think either of us picked Clemson I did on the you, you switched it up that's right so you picked Clemson I like a genius I and I picked Oklahoma and that game was a little surprising to me yeah because of the way that Clemson was able to run the ball with a quarterback mm-hmm. it was almost like Oklahoma hadn't prepared for that. I mean, it was really surprising to me how well they ran that, that zone read. It was their whole offense for much of the game. Deshaun Watson is a, a really talented guy, and he's going to be tough to stop uh, in under any kind of circumstances. And Oklahoma, yeah, it didn't seem like they had the horses up front to really deal with him. They didn't. On the other side, Alabama thrashed Michigan State. Just made, as we predicted, really. Yeah, made Most Michigan people State. Were predicting it that. was just a little brother version of that. And really, the, the Big 12 and the Big 10, rough bowl season. Rough bowl rough, season. Rough. And, you know, I like to, you know, not take a lot of stock in that. I put a lot of stock in that because bowl season is, as we talked about, so crazy. But when you show up that flat as a conference as a whole, it's not, doesn't look good on you. And all the talk about the Big Ten surpassing the SEC last year because of, you know, 
SEC looked bad in some of those bigger bowls, but then like had a really great bowl record otherwise. And then they just, you know, other than our terrible showing, then A&M, you know, looking bad, they're kind of imploding at the same time. Like, you know, we just got slotted wrong, really, against, you know, a higher quality opponent than what we currently were. But, yeah, Big Ten looking rough back to back around to that. Michigan State, it's kind of like a – I looked at it as like an MMA fight where Alabama was better than them at everything. They were like – use this analogy better at striking and grappling and wrestling and cardio and everything – Michigan State had no way to win the fight. There's nothing that they did that Alabama didn't do better. Yeah, and that was, like we said, not a surprise really at all. Maybe it was to some other people nationally because Michigan State had played close games. But Alabama, that much time to prepare, that's a different animal. And the Clemson game sets up interesting for me. Mm-hmm. I, I continue to have a bias, which I will just admit that I am biased against the zone read style of offense mainly because it really hasn't won a title unless you have a ridiculous athlete a la cam newton running it for you even tim like what urban spread is is a little different it bases a lot of itself off the zone read but clemson is so much deshaun watson running i mean so much of him having to run not necessarily for massive yardage but for important yardage they're a team that gets inside the red zone and you're going to expect four of their six plays to be deshaun watson runs of some sort now Interestingly enough, Nick Saban has been utterly dominant against pocket passers and traditional teams, and he's really, really struggled against running quarterbacks. A lot of that, I think, has to do with Johnny Manziel and some funky jump balls and weird things happening, but the game sets up interesting for me because Alabama's front seven is ridiculous. I mean, that is an incredibly quick, agile, athletic, and smart front. I'm not sure what Clemson's game plan will be to gain yards against them. I don't think they'll be able to do what they did against Oklahoma and just line up and run zone read. If they can't do that, I'm not sure what to make of this game. Clemson's defense is a better than average defense, but it's not necessarily like a national championship caliber defense. They can't carry you. So I'm not sure what scoring range Clemson wins this game. And do they win a game that's like 20 to 17? Is that what they need? I mean... I'm having a hard time finding a story where Clemson wins if it doesn't involve Deshaun Watson running for it a at least 80, 90, 100 yards against Alabama's front in key moments. I could see him doing that, though. I mean, they're multiple enough in what they do. Um, and they you're right, they do depend on him a lot. But they have some weapons. They have a decent running back. They have some good receivers. They're, I don't know, I feel like... They trick you and they kind of lull you to sleep. And what they seem to be doing is simple, but what you know kind of will ultimately get you is when they break those big plays on you. And so it's kind of like Auburn with Nick Marshall and against Bama. You saw them; they would stop them, and then they would hit those big plays on him. So I think Clemson's going to have to hit like a lot of big plays and catch Alabama's you know sometimes vulnerable secondary sleeping a little bit. Yeah, and there's there's certainly a way Clemson can win. It, it's just, to me, it seems, maybe I just don't believe in Clemson because their jersey says Clemson, which I think has a lot to do with this. That does. But the other side just does have to do with that sort of style. But then again, like we said, Nick Saban has struggled. He has struggled with these kind of teams. And yeah. I don't know if that's him struggling or if it's, maybe that's being overblown, but it will make for a very intriguing game. It's sort of an SEC battle as as the media wants to, to bank on it because, you know, Clemson's more SEC than they are ACC. They're in the South. It's... It's kind of one of those fun, intriguing games. I like the matchup. I think it will be yeah, an interesting, interesting. interesting matchup. Clemson has loads of talent, like you said. A lot of guys that were Gator leans that went there. So that's interesting, too. They recruit well for a team in the ACC. 
and you know without a natural like you know recruiting spot you know Deshaun Watson's a guy from Atlanta or outside Atlanta you know and they scooped him up so they're they're compelling we'll see if Shaq Lawson their really outstanding defensive lineman plays I think that would be big for them there's a lot of storylines in this game there's a lot of I think ways it could go I could see either team winning I don't see Clemson blowing out Bama, but I do see a scenario where Bama just loads them up against the run and they can't get anything moving and they just kind of do their boa constrictor thing and throttle them to death. So, uh, But I wouldn't be surprised to see Clemson win. When Alabama has lost, like you said, it's not that they've struggled so much all the time against running quarterbacks, but when they do lose, there's something in there that they have a difficulty guarding, maybe out some on the perimeter where they, they get ex- exposed in speed like from their linebacker spot, but they're a little quicker there this year too. So it's going to be tough on Clemson. And that's that's the one thing I wanted to bring up is Alabama made a committed decision in the offseason to shrink their linemen. So those guys are 15 to 20 pounds lighter this year than they have been in the past. And, and that may be, in my mind, it was very tactical. They wanted those guys to report lighter, faster, quicker. They are a lighter line. So I'm very intrigued to see how well they handle that because the X's and O's of stopping Clemson's offense are not difficult. It's very much the Urban Meyer symptom of we're going to have athletes we're going to we're going to use the numerical advantage of running the quarterback those are things Saban implicitly understands how to stop so I'm I'm excited to see the chess match that goes on there and and one side note the reason why Alabama is so successful and I tipped this earlier in the show about how they can win without maybe an a-plus quarterback or even a b-plus quarterback and, and Coker had a really nice game I mean a really nice game against Michigan State is because they have generally every single year the best offensive line and the best defensive line in college football and a lot of the times especially on the offensive line it's not even close they'll have guys that are ranked in the top 100 four of their five or six linemen will be in the top 100 whereas even let's take a school like us this year we're gonna have one guy maybe two in the top 150 and guys three four five and six are ranked a thousand and that's a lot of other really big schools and so the fact that Nick Saban is continually able to recruit NFL caliber alignment every single year and have five or six of them starting is a massive advantage, which then allows an average quarterback to shine because he has a lot of time back there. That's a luxury a lot of schools can never generate, really. Um, so interesting side note there. So give me your prediction then, national championship game. Who's winning it? What's the score? I think it's going to end up being close. I think Clemson's going to surprise Bama with a few things and with some of their speed. Deshaun Watson just seems to get it done. I, I keep wanting to discount Clemson and they keep showing me more and more. So I'm going to say, ooh, this is a tough one. I'm going to say 27-24 Alabama. I like that 27 number. I'm going 27-17 Alabama. I think that the better defenses Clemson has faced, they've, they've kept them around that low 20s range. I think Bama will knock that off a few points plus the, the time. But I will be adamantly rooting for Clemson. So maybe that surprises really? people on the show. Yeah, where's my SEC banner? But I'm sick of Alabama winning. I don't want them to win anymore. This will be their, what is it, their fourth or fifth national title in the past eight, nine, ten years. I don't know. It's disgusting. I'm sick of it. I wanted them to lose against Michigan State. I don't care about what the SEC perception is. I, I'm just... They're winning so often. It's so grossly ridiculous to me. It is tough. I mean, I wanted them to beat Michigan State. I did not want another Big Ten win over Alabama. But at this point, having gotten that mucking off their back and really dominated Michigan State, I don't think I would be upset if, if Clemson won. I, I'll have to see who I'm pulling for in the game. Because for the Gator program, it's it's helpful for the SEC to be dominant. But you're right. If it was any other team, I'd be pulling for them easily. But gosh, Alabama, I am I am tired of their dominance. I'm ready for them to fall. 
Um, it's going to be, I think, a really fun game. I, I don't expect Alabama to just completely shut them down, although I could that is a possibility where they just win like 35 to 10, you know, and really shut them down. I expect it to be closer than that. Yeah, and if I can give a key to the game as a, as a fun sort of season ender, the key to the game for me is, in fact, watching the run game early on from Clemson. Either the traditional run game or the quarterback run game, either one of those, if they are successful in generating second and four, third and three, Clemson has a shot. If they are in a situation where it's it's first and 10 to second and 10, they are in a lot of trouble. And I think you're going to notice that very early on in that game. And if that's a trend where you see that they're unable to run, um, I think they're going to be in a lot of trouble. Because they're not a team, as athletic as they are, they're not a team that's built to convert third and sevens, thirds and eights consistently. Like They really need to be in that Urban Meyer third and short, and then they can really hurt you. Because then they can shoot the big pass play when you think they're going to run. So they have to have that look for that early on in that game. Okay, well, let's move on and look at kind of the future a little bit. What's coming up for this Gator program? You know, we're done with the actual season. What are the important things to know moving forward through the spring semester? Well, we've got in the immediate situation recruiting. And right now, all, all signals are go. We're doing an excellent job on the recruiting path. We got a large class coming in. And we're not going to talk a lot about it now because at the end of January, we'll be doing a recruiting episode, two of them really, that are going to cover in-depth what's happening. But the good thing to note is, note right now that we're doing really well. We're ranked as high as number one by some services and as low as eight or nine by others. But by all accounts, we pulled in a lot of quality players. Uh, and that's what you really want to see out of, a, out of an early and a young coach is the ability to go out there and recruit. And we're in on a lot of potential five-star recruits, which will be exciting to see if we can land and some of them. And, you know, recruiting is something that some people are extremely passionate about. Other people, you know, don't pay much attention to. To me, it's I know it's important, but I don't <laughs> – it annoys me at points. But why is it important? Why is it recruiting a big deal to a college program? Yeah, to me, it, it's it's like anything you like in life. If you want to build a house, the house is more expensive based upon the quality of the materials. doesn't mean that a great architect can't go and build that house with inferior materials and make it better, but it's unlikely. It's unlikely. And recruiting is that way. I mean, Alabama's had four years in a row the number one consensus-ranked class by all the services, and no surprise, look at their look at how well they've done. So it, it does mean a lot. I think the reason why people get sour on recruiting is most schools aren't like Alabama where they're pulling in 12 really high caliber guys they're going to pull in two or three which you would consider to be studs and if those guys don't turn out well or they transfer it's like oh see recruiting does not matter but uh, there is a strong correlation to sort of your average quality player and how well you can become as a program assuming all their things are equal so like you said do i like to follow the drama of all these kids going back and forth about how important they are and how much they mean to programs no i hate that part of it but do I realize the importance of the overall aggregate quality of the guys you get? Yes, you have to be able to win these battles. And Callaway is a great example. What would this year have been without Callaway? Think about that. That's how recruiting makes a difference. And you have to get those kind of guys. And that's why Alabama is the bellwether program right now is every single year they get those guys, which is why they essentially never have to rebuild. They just do not miss with regards to their recruiting. And I think McElwain is attempting to institute a very similar philosophy with regards to how he recruits which which i'm liking it it's not just about flashy players it's really a very you know let's call it a methodology of how he's going to fill his needs each year yeah and we'll dive in like you said we're gonna do coming up here we're gonna do a podcast here in january 25th right before recruiting national signing when all these guys can officially commit you know right now they're commits and that you know 
that word gets used a lot and very loosely, and then post-signing day in early February. So pay attention to that. If you're someone who loves recruiting, I'm sure you're all up on it. If not, we'll have a ton of discussion for you. And then we're going to do another podcast after the spring game sometime, kind of wrapping up that part of the calendar. Because after recruiting, you know, all the programs go into their spring practice, leading up to a spring game as you know, it's just a glorified scrimmage. But those practices are important for the building of the program. And so, yeah, that's what's coming up for us. Anything else? Thoughts on the bowl, on the season as a whole? You're feeling good right now, I think? I feel good that we've covered. I feel like we've really covered it. And it's been a fun year. It's been a lot of up and down and, and lots of different movements. It's been a really interesting movie, if you will, with a whole bunch of plot twists and patting ourselves on the back. I think for our first season, we, we have a really stellar record at what we were thinking was going to happen, especially with regards to some of the game theory things, and that was certainly fun. And reflecting back on it, as my closing comment for the 2015 college football year, I do really believe that with Will Greer, we could have won a national title, and I don't think that was far-fetched. And so the frustrating thing I think I'll always take with this season is thanks to his poor choices and now his, his rather baffling decision to leave, which I think is indeed baffling, um, it's just a what could have been. It really could have been something for these players that it didn't turn out to be that way. And the flip side of that script is we came into the year not knowing what McElwain would do. And I sit here in this chair now and I feel very confident that this program will be really good. And that hopefully, hopefully, now that we're behind schedule quarterback-wise, either Del Rio or Felipe Franks is able to play at an average level next year, in which case we will then have yet another shot to win the SECs to continue to build on this momentum. All right, so that puts a wrap here on episode 17. Look again for us here at the end of January the 25th, and we'll get you all ready for the big recruiting news. So thanks again for listening. We appreciate it, and we'll see you soon. Honey, I switched the family to Boost Mobile and we got so much more. Like what? Well, we got four free LG Stylo 5 phones, four lines for just $25 per line per month. I smashed up the car and unlimited gigs. Wait, did you say you smashed up the car? Yes, it's completely smashed. But four free phones. Switch to Boost and get four lines for just $25 per line per month. Four free phones with unlimited gigs, all on our super reliable, super fast nationwide network. Boost Mobile, the switch that gives you more. Terms and conditions apply. New customers only. Visit BoostMobile.com for details. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.